Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the line. Yes! Marco DeVille! That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend some time with you just the two of us. Welcome to the Two Solitudes Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins here in Toronto. Kevin Laramie, as always, joins me from Montreal. Uh, we're doing a special edition today. It's, it's being taped on Friday, and we hope to maybe get it out on Friday, but we're having some uh, issues with our uh, our uh, software-type people, the people that uh, host the site, so it might not be up till Saturday. Regardless, you'll get it at some point. Um, we're going to talk about a few things today, Kevin. We're going to talk about uh, the CCL, uh, Montreal Impact's 1-0 win over the Red Bulls and what that means. Maybe uh, DeVille might have an update on his history, I'm hearing. Yeah, he's making a media round, so having a little comments from him as well. Uh, we're going to have more turf talk. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about the MLS logo. And what I think that means about MLS's uh, consideration of Canada, and a lot of people are going to accuse me of being a little bit uh, anal or pedantic about this, but damn it, I have a point to make, and I'm going to make it. And finally, we're going to talk a bit about uh, Lewicki. There were some updates on Lewicki's Ryerson speech today. He responded to it, Curtis Larson of the uh, Toronto Sun, and uh, what it means and blah, blah, blah. So we're going to have a bit of TFC talk at the end. And so, uh, as always, Wayne, when we record our show earlier in the week, well, all hell breaks loose during the week and news keep coming out out of the woodworks. Yes, and we're we're looking to find several different ways to to more permanently give you this show, but we need to monetize it a bit, folks. So um, you know what to do if you can do it. But at any rate, we'll move on from that and take the quick break now. And we're back, and uh, Kevin, you got the win. Uh, first off, we'll, we'll stay positive before I ask you the negative side of that. <laughs> How did it feel to get the win over New York? It felt great. great. It felt uh, three points, uh, top of the group three, three, but it uh, feels like opportunities were missed. Yeah, especially the, right at the very end, there was a three-on-two where had they laid the ball to the side. The second goal looked like it would have been a no-brainer, but... Uh, is 1-0 going to be enough? That is the question. Do you, do you think it's enough? You never know what can happen when a team travels down to uh, not South America, but to Central America in the CONCACAF. And who knows what New York's going to do? Are they going to bring their Henri and Cahill? I doubt it. And we've seen teams get destroyed down there. It's going to happen to New York? I don't know. If New York wins their game, it's going to be very interesting to see how it pans out with the goal differential, because that's the only thing that I'm taking out of this Wednesday. That opportunity missed to not put a couple past Ryan Mera could have cost you your group, but still nine points out of possible nine points. Top of the group by far for now. So it's New York still has to win those games. 
Absolutely. And look, we've said right from the get-go in this competition that we're not entirely certain that New York's going to, that New York's going to take it seriously. And the lineup they put out against Montreal to take nothing away from the wind. You, you play the teams in front of you. I'm not trying to be dismissive impact fans, but it clearly was a second choice lineup for the, for the Red Bulls. Uh, that does beg the question of whether they're, when they play FAS, who they're going to send down there. Are they going to send kids down there, or there's going to be a similar lineup? It's probably be a similar lineup, I would think, but I can't see the stars going down. Can you? No, exactly. We all saw the pitch condition when Montreal traveled down to it, and they're not the greatest, so we've seen a lot better many times. Now, FAS isn't, dangerous, isn't, yeah. FAS isn't very good. Nope. But one bad bounce, a draw, and New York has to be perfect there. I think that is the the positive thing that comes out of this from, from Montreal. Had they had New York gone in and hung out for a draw, and they clearly were playing. In fact, Mike Pecky said in the pregame that he was playing for a draw, which is kind of more candid than than most coaches would be, but Mike Pecky's a candid guy. Um, had they got the draw, then New York could have went down there. They could have afforded another draw, and just would have had to win at home to, to get through the group, right? Now they have to be perfect. So they do need to go down and get the win. That gives Montreal a chance to maybe win it and rest players. Well, I don't know if they'd rest players. They're not else to play for anyway. Yeah. <laughs> go, go style. But the game in New York, you know, Montreal hasn't won a game on the road all year. Like it's basically New York has to win two nil. I think it's the first tiebreaker is head to head goal differential. Is it overall goal diff? Uh, goal differential. So overall, including FAS. Uh, yes. Okay. So uh, remind me, Kevin, and remind the listeners what you, the Montreal scores were against FAS. Montreal was one nothing and two one, so they're plus two with the one nothing yesterday. They're actually plus two now, so uh, which is uh, not too bad. They're plus three, are they not? Plus three, yes, plus three. Yeah, so okay. four goals scored with the one goals against. So we'll know exactly what they need to do going into that game. Obviously, a win will do it, and a draw will yes. do it. So Montreal has that in front of them. Um, like Petke was, what I was surprised is Petke was still saying after the match that he thinks New York are in the driver's seat of that group. And I don't get that comment, to be fair. I think that he, what he's saying is that, it, like, no, no, any result that came out of the game would have kept them in the same situation, really. It's just that he's, he, Montreal didn't hang a big number on them, so they don't suddenly have to beat FAS by five goals or something, right? They they've always were going to have their destiny in their hands if they won the group out and beat Montreal by a significant enough mar- margin in the final game that they would, in fact, win the group. Now, there is some interesting scheduling going on with this game, Kevin. It happens after a certain game in Toronto. Montreal going to rest or play, or play their kids in Toronto with uh, about 1,000 traveling fans there? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, but there's a way to do both because there's a lot of kids signed in Montreal. So they'll play the non-good kids against Toronto and beat the good ones against New York. Yeah, when as Toronto showed in the uh, Voyager's Cup against Vancouver's kids, it's not necessarily going to be an easy walk in the park when you have motivated young players out there trying to earn their spot for next year. Um, look, uh, And that like, game could decide the Voyager's Cup for next year too as well. Absolutely, yeah. That race, uh, for those who don't know, will be the highest uh, standing uh, MLS team so it's between Vancouver and Montreal, or Vancouver-Toronto right now. Uh, Vancouver is a three-point edge, but uh, we're going to see. It could come down to it, exactly. Wouldn't it be funny if uh, I, I have this vision that... Uh, Montreal wins it? No, it's impossible. Well, I have this vision that somehow there's like a goal in stoppage time that gives TFC the win or, or something oh. or the draw even that pushes Vancouver out of the spot at the dying second again. I, that's, I just have this vision again that that's a, that Vancouver's destined to never play in the Champions League and always be heartbroken about it. Hashtag um, I remember. 
We tease Vancouver fans. We tease. Uh, we haven't really talked about the game that much. I think Vancouver, Montreal's came out really, they came out very well. Uh, DeVaio did what DeVaio did, got behind the line. You know, was it offside? Was it not? I don't know. It was very close. Eckersley probably played him on maybe. Uh, Eckersley, Richard Eckersley, God knows that's why he was the worst, over, most overpaid player in MLS history. Uh, anyway, and Toronto fans may want to remember that some of his uh, salary is still on TFC's books right now. Ooh, it seems like he missed him. Yeah, well, he'll be gone after this year. He, he was a he, he was a trier. Richard's a trier, and that's why he was popular in Toronto because he puts a lot of effort in. But the effort wasn't always necessarily based on skill. But I digress. Um, it kind of dulled a bit after that. I like well, from your perspective, what happened to Montreal after the hot start? I think they they really didn't want to concede a goal, so they went more defensive. They literally parked the bus and. I still don't get it. When the other guy got his, uh, the Red Bull player got sent off, they should have tried to at least get that second goal at home with the, uh, in quotes, better lineup than the other team because you're playing for nothing in the league. So you're putting all your resources for the Champions League. So I was really surprised that Montreal was not able to get that second goal. It would have been really needed. That second goal would have basically pretty much wrapped up the whole group because New York would have had to beat Montreal by three goals. That's not easy. I, I, I kind of Montreal has had a lot of trouble at the back this year. It's fair to say. So I, I kind of get it's precarious at that point that one counterattack that goes bad and suddenly those three points are won and you're really looking bad to qualify at that point. You know, that I, I kind of get it. Uh-huh. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, absolutely. A second goal would have, would have killed it out. I think that that play right at the end has got to burn. It was running towards the altars too. Everyone's screaming, pass it to the left. <laughs> uh, speaking of passing, uh, that game could have been costly for the impact. Patrice Bernier will be playing for the next little while. Uh, injury details have not been disclosed so far. But according to him on his Twitter feed and his Facebook page, he's out for a couple months. So it uh, might be season over for Patrice Bernier already. I might worry that that might be career over for Patrice Bernier. And if uh, the injury's bad enough, he's not at an age that they necessarily recovers as well. We saw it with D-Row with the injury in Panama. He's never been the same player since, right? If you can read between the lines on his actual quote, he had that in mind as well. He was literally really upset about it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Patrice a good guy. Uh, I've had a chance to talk to him a few times over the years, and he's always been a good soldier for Canadian and Montreal soccer, so we, we wish him well. Uh, you, you said uh, just before this, we taped this, it was a, a interview in, uh, on Montreal radio, uh, correct, uh, about DeVaio's situation yes. that you listen to? Uh, Marco DeVaio's been doing the rounds the last couple of days of the media. He's been on TSN radio today, speaking to Tony Morrow for a good half an hour. It was a great interview. And two news can come out of that. First of all, did you know that Joseph Puto will be the new owner, well, one of the new owners of Bologna FC in Italy? Oh, did not know that. Yes, so that's a little bit of the news that's been making the round. But Marco De Vaio is leaning towards retirement. Very, we, we all knew that. But Piatti did not uh, convince him so far. And his family is really missing him. And he's missing his family. He wants to go back to Italy. He might not even uh, retire his cleats. He still has the competitive fire inside of him. It's going to be hard to make the decision to retire. But he wants his family close to him. Anybody wants him to stay with Montreal? You know what to do. Trying to convince his wife for a second time to move here. How old are his kids? 
uh, one is a, they're both close to ten. One I think is eleven. One is seven, if I'm not mistaken. But I could be mistaken. I, I, you know, you kind of have to sometimes look at it from a human perspective too. You can kind of understand how you might want to spend a little more time with your kids, play a Serie B team or something over there. Yep. However, uh, I tell you what, the, the link up play with uh, your new DP, if uh, you know if he doesn't fly to Miami in the off season, does I have to admit look pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, will there even be a team in Miami? That's another question. No, there. Well, I said that at the time. I wrote a, I wrote an article that no one understood on CSN about uh, how Tweed Ontario was uh, had intentions to build an MLS team in there, and that it was as, as relevant as Michael or Michael Brett. And David Beckham's announcement, because if you read the, between the lines, it was like David Beckham being David Beckham, all sizzle, no steak. Anyway. I was just speaking of news, uh, because it came out this morning as well, the strikers, four little strikers got sold to a group of new owners. Traffic Sports sold the team today. And that's uh, another surprising development in the NSL. Yeah, it, it makes every team independently owned now in NSL. Uh, so there's no uh, central ownership. That's one of the things they hold quite pride. The pride is the difference between them and MLS. Uh, and I tell you what, I've been having conversations with a while, and I think that the traffic sports MLS battles uh, and the SUM battles in the next few years are going to be very interesting to see how that plays out and how that shapes North American soccer, particularly up north of the border. We'll talk about a bit of that a little bit later. Um, yeah, I think we'll move on now and, and talk about uh, a little bit about the U.S. Open Cup real briefly. Um, the U.S. Open Cup was won by Seattle for the 712th time. Um, <laughs> fourth time. Seattle, to their credit, takes this tournament very seriously. They always have since the beginning. It's been a priority. They've always played their starters, and the results reflect that they've won it uh, four times in their existence, in a very short existence. They treat it as a major trophy, and not every team in MLS does. So, congratulations to them. But there was a little bit of a Canadian tie into this, uh, to the Voyager's Cup. And Chad Barrett scored the equalizing goal against Philadelphia in the 70th minute or something like that. He then became, and here's a nice piece of trivia for you, the first player to ever score in a Voyager's Cup clinching game. He, of course, scored the winning cup in um, in the 6-1 game. Where was that one played, uh, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Chad scored the winning goal, the little header that bounced off the, the ground and in. Uh, and there's a great reaction to that. If you ever get on YouTube of the of the UMO2, and there you can see about 12 of them universally putting their heads to their head or hands to their head in disbelief of what they were saying. But anyway, I digress. I mean, yeah, back then we used to see that often, though. And it's like, oh, what have we done? Yeah, well, I I, I do have a little empathy for you. I can't imagine what that was like because I know how much they don't like PFC. Yeah. <laughs> so, at any rate, uh, yeah, that, that okay. was, to this day, they're still talking about that moment. So anyway, Chad, Chad has scored in both a Voyager's Cup clincher and a U.S. Open Cup clincher. One other brief talk, the, a lot of American, we have American listeners, so a lot of American listeners like to dismiss our, our little tickle tournament, they call it up, or our tickle fight, they call it up here. The reality is it only takes, basically Seattle had to win four games against MLS competition uh, this year to win the U.S. Open Cup. In previous years, they've only had to win three. Um and that's not even counting the fact that usually the first game they play is against a basically a reserve team because Seattle is one of the three or four teams that take the damn tournament seriously. I'm not discounting the importance of winning the U.S. Open Cup or dismissing Seattle's accomplishment in it, but I think that we sometimes dismiss the Voyager's Cup's difficulty to win, and uh, it, just, it illustrates it to me when you, you see the U.S. Open Cup and the struggles it has. There's more people watch Voyager's Cup's games than U.S. Open Cup's uh, on average, so... We have and a good thing going up here. One thing you said off the air to me, too, is that in the Canadian Championship, the Wager's Cup, you play against rivals. There's only so many teams that you play against people you know, and the supporters are really taking it seriously. U.S. Open Cup, the first couple rounds, 
even the supporters don't get into it the way that the Canadian supporters do. So uh, it's a little bit more romantic still in Canada, I think, too. Yeah, even Seattle plays their games at their secondary stadium, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas there was 20,000 for the against Vancouver in Toronto. It's a season ticket package, but there's still 20,000 people there. So it's it's just it's a good competition. It, just because it's not open doesn't mean it's not hard to win. And it will be open in about two years. In 2017, I, I have it on good authority that, that there will be a a there, it won't be as open as the U.S. Open Cup. We're not going to have like knockout rounds for you know five months or something. But there will be a way that an amateur team could technically qualify for the tournament. And once that happens, then you know everyone should be satisfied. The tournament will be open. Reality, the reality of it will be that the same semifinals are likely going to happen every year, though, right? Yeah, for sure. Except it, one year out of nowhere. If you remember Cal FC a couple of years ago in the U.S. Open Cup, a team team that was managed by Rick Ronaldo back then made it all the way to the semifinals as a uh, fourth division team. Yeah, and look, if if the Canadian League that we talked about uh, a few months ago and we're going to talk about briefly and passing today, later today ever gets off the ground and you have 10 NASL Canadian teams uh, competing against the three MLS teams, the Voyager's Cup is suddenly going to become a very interesting competition indeed. Building, and we're behind in this country, and so just don't dismiss the Voyager's Cup, people. It's ours. We're proud of it. We're proud of the fan-driven history behind the trophy, especially. I think that that's something that we should hold in great accord. Uh, the fact that the fans were the one that pushed for it and got it and accomplished it. It's, it's a testament of what positive thinking can do, which there's not enough of in Canadian soccer sometimes. So at any rate, it's just a little thing. It's a, it's a soft spot for me, and the U.S. Open Cup gave me a chance to do that. But congratulations to Chad, the greatest cup scorer in North American cup history now. All right. Kevin, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about the turf. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast on Stitcher Radio with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramay. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio, Stitcher Radio. Would you just please subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio? Thank you very much for subscribing to the show. And now, back to the show on Stitcher Radio. Coming soon on Stitcher Radio. Come on. Let's talk about turf. Let's talk about turf. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that make me. Let's talk about turf. Turf. And we're back. And uh, I wasn't going to talk about this, but then... The women decided to talk about it again last night. The U.S. women's national team played Mexico in a friendly in Rochester uh, last evening. The U.S. won 4-0. Uh, Rochester, for those that don't know, uh, it's the home of the Rhinos. Uh, it's a beautiful little stadium, actually. For many years, it had some thoughts that it might be an MLS stadium one day, but eventually MLS moved beyond that market. Um, it's field turf. So... They played on field turf, which isn't necessarily controversial or shouldn't be because they should be playing on field turf in preparation for next year because the World Cup's going to be played on field turf, people. Um, however, at the end of the game, there were some very interesting comments that came out. Uh, Abby Wambach, first off, who that's I, – I, I should take a step back. Abby Wambach plays for the Western New York Flash who play in this stadium. She plays on this turf professionally all the time. So you would think someone who plays on a surface would understand the surface and would not be affected by the surface. Is that a fair assumption, Kevin? Oh, yes. And it's not just a fair assumption. It's would logic would dictate that. 
Yes. Okay. So I'm going to read you Abby Wambach's quote that she gave to uh, a writer for uh, NBC Sports, uh, Nicholas. Uh, one, I can't see his last name, or I'm not going to pronounce it wrong. So whatever. It's a USA Sports. I've tweeted it a thousand times. You can get it. However, uh, here's the quote. Tonight we could have finished a few more chances, but maybe on a different surface it goes in, Wambach said. FIFA is probably trying to stall a little at this point to hopefully make the issue go away. They think that we're probably not very serious, but we are, and we're ready to go to litigation. It's now six weeks past their first deadline, however. At the end of the day, if you were to look at both of these games and see the difference in quality of play, you would vehemently see the difference in the game at Salt Lake and the game here. They played a friendly in Salt Lake. The ball is bouncing here. Players can't get a good touches on the ball. Uh, Amy Rodriguez, she uh, chimed in. Obviously, tonight the surface was not ideal, but it was it was a little bit tough. The ball was bouncing. We obviously played a lot differently. Hopefully, we're going into next summer. We'll have the turf issue resolved. We'd love to play on real grass, and hopefully we can play the best soccer on that as well. And then the coach chimed in, and it was basically the typical sort of uh, U.S. position that they've been doing this. And, again, I don't want to dismiss their – they have every right to have these opinions, just as Kaylin Kyle had every right to have her opinion, as I said last week. However, at some point, it becomes obsessive almost, no? Yeah. It becomes a definition of insanity. All the, the, the Lehman's definition of insanity, which always try the same thing and expecting a different result. That's what it looks yeah. like. Like I, I think that uh, if I were the Western New York Flash, I'd be having words with, with Abby first off, that she's basically telling – you know, she's basically telling the fans of that team that, that they're not getting a full quality uh, competition there. So why bother buying a ticket, really, if you think about it? And then um, she talked about the bounce of the ball. Isn't it the bounce the same for all 22 players on the field? Yeah, it is absolutely is a, is absolutely is a, a, the right same bounce for everyone in the field. It's like we talk about that all the time in different surfaces that it's the same pitch for everyone. Um, look. Mexico, they won the game 4-0. This idea that they would have scored more if they, if it wasn't on field turf seems a bit unprovable to me. They didn't score. Mexico was playing on the same field turf. Was Mexico's game not affected by it? Their argument was that it, it kept Mexico in the game, that the field turf somehow uh, equalized things and it allows for lesser talented teams to win. So I think what we need to do, Kevin, and what I might do is look at some international football results on turf and grass and see whether there is a correlation between upsets on field turf versus grass. You know what I'm saying? To see whether you're more likely to see an upset or more likely to see less goals from a higher seeded team on, on grass or on field turf. That's a good pitches. point. I have statements like that. Yeah, it's a good point. But between you and me, uh, do you think there's a lot of grass pitches in Mexico that the women practice on? Oh, yeah, I'm sure that they do. But... Uh, yeah, the, the, the Mexican women were probably less likely or less uh, aware or having less experience is what I'm trying to say with, with playing on field turf. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. No, that that's what's going to be my point. I'm like, okay, if you – just experience-wise, Mexico probably had less players playing on those surfaces and they still won for nothing. So uh I'm still having difficulty. It, it sounds like excuses to – uh to balance things out, excuses to uh, explain a big defeat against a rival team. That's what it looks like. Well, they they won for nothing. No, sorry. Uh, the, yeah, well, the yeah. Like, what, what the, this is what I'm getting at too. Like they won four nil, people. Like how bad can the surface have been? How bad could that have affected your game? It's four nil. I know the U.S. women are used to beating teams up because they're very good, but, but come on. I mean. <laughs> It's at some point. This was they know they went in with an agenda to get these quotes out. Yeah. 
I would argue that it's not they have every right. I'm going to stress this again. They have every right to make these comments whenever they want. However, from a sporting perspective, at some point, is it not a better venue to talk about the turf before the game, maybe, or in a separate situation altogether, but immediately after they clearly went in with an agenda? And I don't know if that is helpful to them. I'm not a U.S. women's national team fan, so I don't really care how they do in the World Cup next year. But to me, they are making themselves, they are setting themselves up the way they're they're acting right now. They are going to completely get inside their head with this turf issue if they truly believe it, and there's no indication that they don't. And I, if, if you have an early futures bet against the U.S., bet against them because unless they can mentally wrap their head around the fact that they're going to play on turf, and that's when I say that I'm not trying to be like the you know dismissive of their concerns about the gender equality. My position on that is well established. However, if that's found to be the case, then it's found to be the case. But what I'm saying is that there is very little indication that they will win this battle. So the the tournament will be played on turf, and if they don't wrap their head around mentally on that, then they're not going to perform in that tournament. And at some point, someone in that organization needs to tell them to back off and to focus on the realities that they're playing. I mean, you're seeing the German team knows that they're playing on turf, and they don't like it either, but they just get ahead and go along with the game. The Japanese, there's Japanese women that have signed the petition. Have you heard anything from the Japanese media? I mean, we don't speak Japanese, but I'm sure that if they were speaking, that they would have, that if a prominent player was speaking out, it would have trickled out in the Wilso community. So, look, at some point, you got to, focus on the reality that if they feel that they weren't finishing chances because of turf, then they need to figure out and fix that for next year because that's the turf, the, the surface they're going to be playing on. Yeah, we're, we're less than a year away from that tournament. Do you think it's going to literally affect the U.S.? Like, right now, let's call it, could that old situation or debacle with the turf literally impede the U.S. in the tournament? I think it will. That's, it absolutely mentally is going to harm them if they keep focusing on it. They have a ready-made excuse. When you give yourself an excuse to lose, you'll lose. It's a bit of a cliche, but I believe that. Anyway, the, the last point I'm going to make on this is, is, is simply this. They made, they sent the letter out on July 28th. They had a deadline of August 4th for the CSA and FIFA to respond. They didn't. They then made a, a, an additional media appearance in early, it was August 2nd, I believe. They said that within a week, that week deadline is passed. At one point, is someone going to ask them how serious the threats are and why these threats haven't gone forward? If the, there is value to the case, if the case can move forward, then why hasn't it so far? And how do they anticipate changing things this close to the, the tournament? I mean, it's... At what point does this end, I guess is what I'm saying. It's To me, it's clear as day that it's not going to change. And I was talking to an American today who is vehemently against turf that also agrees that it's not going to change. We can disagree on how serious that issue is. Uh, we can disagree on the turf issue. But at some point, we have to move forward and we have to continue to promote the game and, uh, and promote the World Cup, too. I mean, do is it really that helpful for women's soccer to have all of this focus on the surface rather than what's going to be played out there because there will be brilliant plays out there regardless. Do you not want next summer to be about the game? And yes, some American listener might say this, well, the CSA should have put grass out there if that was the case. Well, sure, I think that the tournament should have been played on grass too, but at some point, 
if the Real need to move forward and you need to start celebrating the game because the game still has not reached the heights that it can. And if you make a World Cup and make it about turf and make it about how terrible the thing is there, people are going to have confirmation bias and they're going to see it as terrible. And they're not going to enjoy that and the sport isn't going to grow. And how does that help anyone? And to be fair, on the U-20s, I've seen a lot of great play, a lot of great soccer being played on that pitch and great goals. So just sport aspect, it might even give us better games. So you never know. Yeah, I actually that's an interesting uh, thing to look at. Uh, I want to find advanced stats of the game between Rio Tinto and uh, and Rochester and see if um, if there was more misplaced passes and things like that. Because I at some time point, I mean, it's confirmation bias is a strong thing. If you think you're going to see something, you see it. We, all of us are guilty of it. And look, I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of it too when, on this issue, but the women absolutely are guilty of it. They went into the game looking for the reasons why it was a worse surface. They found them. Of course they did. True. Very true. All right. I think it's time we take another small break, Dwayne, and then we hold it off for too long. We need to talk about the new logo. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Sucker Podcast with Kevin Laramie and Dwayne Rollins. You can reach the guys on Twitter at 24th Minute and at Kevin Laramie. Or both of them at Two Solitudes Pod. Reach the guys on email to solitudespodcast at gmail.com. But especially subscribe on Stitcher Radio. Now back to the show. And we're back. And before we get into the MLS's exciting new logo, um, I'm going to do a bit of an update on, on Lewicki because he's the man that never stops talking. Um, he gave a exclusive interview to uh, uh, Curtis Larson of the Toronto Sun uh, yesterday. Although Lewicki gives a lot of exclusive, I think he gives exclusive interviews to like people on the bus sometimes. Like, I mean, that's not disrespectful to Kurt. It's just <laughs> the guy with his iPhone. Yeah, he like, hey, dude, you want an interview? Yeah, I'll give you an exclusive. <laughs> Tim likes to talk. At any rate, he talked about the the Ryerson stuff the other day, and first off, hilariously, he sort of tried to play the oh, I thought it was just a small little intimate gathering of students. Yeah, the most powerful uh, sports executive uh, that's controversial and move out of town and is always good for a quote is talking in a public forum and it's not going to make it out into public uh, media here in the city of Toronto. Uh huh, Tim, you're smarter than that. You knew exactly what you're doing. Don't hand me that. Um, he in that statement uh, last week we talked about it said that uh, you know if Bradley or sorry if uh, Defoe didn't want to be here he should get the hell out of the way and uh, he didn't want players here that weren't going to be there and he didn't think he'd be back in January. He backtracked from that. That's him. Important message from this large interview today. He said that he has, quote unquote, cleared the air with uh, Jermaine Defoe about his role at Toronto, that Defoe understands that he's coming back to play and to focus on TFC for the remainder of the time. What happens in January happens in January, but in the meantime, he's a TFC player and he needs to perform to his fullest ability uh, and live up to his contractual obligations, really. And by the sound of it, from and Defoe's also tweeted things and all that sort of stuff, and Toronto fans are very cynical by nature and for good reason because of the last seven years, but I don't think there's much evidence that Defoe's going to come back here and sulk and not do anything because that would hurt his value, hurt his transfer prospects. He's going to come back and he's going to want to score. So, fine. Whether they can keep him in January or not, I don't know. I don't think so still. But it, Beckham was out the door too, and they, they pulled him back, so we never know. Uh, other point on that, he talked about, uh, he said that Bradley and Vanny were the only two people that were, um, were trying in the, on the team. He kind of backed off that a little bit. And the other piece of news was that there was a report in Toronto that the club, the TFC, had reached out to Bob Bradley, uh, to basically can everyone and have him come in and run everything. That report's been out there. That rumor's been out there forever because it just fits too perfectly. Yeah. Um, he denied that that was, that happened. He said he'd be absolutely willing to reach out for Bob Bradley 
and he was careful in how he worded this. I would be willing to reach out to Bob Bradley if uh, Bezbachenko, Tim Bezbachenko, wanted help, is how he put it. So I think if Bob Bradley does come to TFC, it would be an advisory kind of role, and I don't think Bob Bradley's at that point in his career. So I think this is just one of those rumors, the Bob Bradley rumor, that's just a little too perfect, that it just makes sense to too many people that it just grows. So Just like Del Piero in 2011 in Montreal. Yeah, it's... You know, it's possible because there is a personal connection there, but I think Bob Bradley has a lot of aspirations in Europe yet, and that that would be the main reason why he's not going to come to Toronto. Maybe he comes in an advisory role in a couple of years, sure, but uh, in the meantime, I don't think there's much there. But uh, that's the end of that. So, uh, Kevin, um, how good are you at Microsoft Paint? I'm pretty decent, to be fair. I've created a lot of logos for our show, so I'm actually pretty decent at Paint. Uh, did you create the MLS logo? Yes, okay, fine. I'll let the cat out of the bag. It's me. It's me. I did the new logos because every team has a logo now, apparently. Uh, uh, first of all, why did you want it? Why did they change it to start with? I think that they changed it because they did, they don't like the soccer ball and the kicked foot. They think it's too cheesy. It's too American. It's too soccer. Okay. <laughs> If there was a, I do think that's a big part of it. It's a, there's a lot of uh, rejection of soccer um, in MLS now, and I'm surprised they didn't change it to Major League Football or something. <laughs> MLF. MLF, yeah. I think well, it, they would happily do it if the NFL wasn't so big, I think. Or maybe right now they don't want to be associated with the NFL. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, new new logo that looks incomplete to me at first glance. What I, it's interesting, though, and someone pointed this out that watched the presentation, that when they showed it, on video, it looked quite sharp in a video game setting. And I think that's kind of telling because the launch was coincided with FIFA, the FIFA yeah. the video game launch. So this is, I think, what it was about. They basically were doing uh, doing this. It's a corporate thing. It's a corporate branding thing. And I think this will look better in, in certain formats. Um, I don't – look, first off, the fact that we're talking about a bloody logo <laughs> is so MLS. And it speaks to – there's a couple issues I have with this. And I know it's a logo and it doesn't matter. I get that, people. I get it. I get it that in two days it's not going to matter. However, I do think there are things to that about this and about how they go, went about this that speaks about other things about MLS that I want to talk about. And the first one, Kevin, is this. The fact that we're talking about a logo illustrates how much they put marketing above the football. If they wanted to celebrate their 20th anniversary, they should have increased. They should increase the salary cap, make transparent rules, and open up the the player acquisition models to be more free flowing. If they can't, if they, if they must hold on to some elements of single entity, fine. I don't care who the cash the checks are cash for, but make it more of an open market. That would be a true way to move forward and celebrate the 20th anniversary. To say, you know what, we don't need the training wheels anymore. We can open it up. But a logo is so fluff. And that's and every issue I have with MLS comes down to that. Ultimately, even though I enjoy the game day experiences, and I think that there's valuable play soccer to watch out there, and there's entertainment to have, and I want the local teams and the Canadian teams to do well, I still can't get past the fact that on some level it's fluff. Just when you read all the articles about how they went into created that logo, to me it seems like it. It's getting really complicated to find a mark, um, an image for your brand. Damn. Every little pixel of that logo has been explained in detail. It's like you say, it almost looked fluff. It's like they did that and they realized reason after why they did that logo. I, I don't know. 
just the, the the half line that comes out of the crest. It's not a very like aesthetically speaking. It's look, it's not terrible. It's not. It's not like a horrific mess. Uh, it's just not inspiring at all. If you want to talk about it from an aesthetic level, I don't think it's memorable in any way, and it certainly is less creative, less uh, outside the box than it pretends to be. The 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 more you have to explain a logo in or any visual stimuli, the more you have to explain it in words, the less effective it is, in my opinion. And they had a whole press release where they're explaining every detail of it. There's on. nine bullet points of that logo. Nine. Yeah, the the tail is everyone's favorite. It's it's because it represents the speed of the game, by the way. And the three stars, uh, which oh, I'm gonna yeah. talk, you're going to talk about the three stars in a different way. But before we get in, they they represent club, community, and uh, country. Uh, countries, been, you said. Singular country, but <laughs> you're right. Uh, I know. Like in, during the whole presentation, I watched the highlights of it after as well. I'm wondering. I was like, okay, so. Uh, United States Major League Soccer has a new logo. What about us? Yeah, a lot of European people that I follow that follow MLS uh, immediately said they were asked, uh, Alexi Lawless or someone big in the MLS media circles was asking people for their opinions. If you read the follows, a lot of non-Americans said it looks very American, and especially Europeans said that because they picked up this guy. It's red, white, and blue, even though the blue is subtle. Um, and it's got stars on it. And I know that it's not 50 stars, but stars are synonymous with, with the U.S. They truly are. And in this soccer context, they can also mean different things, but I don't, I'm not aware of MLS winning the European Cup. Are you? <laughs> nope. No. So there's three stars on there. So fine. I, look, it, it strikes me as designed by committee, first off. And it strikes me, I was talking to someone who does have design experience. They said it's, it struck them as designed by committee and with a lot of interference from the partner, which is creates the most uninspiring design ever when the league gets too involved. But, okay, I'll go into my Canada bit here uh, right now. There's nothing on there that screams Canada. Some people will say red and white is on there and the most prominent colors, and that's why it's Canada. I think that's bullshit. I mean, come on, it's... It's, it's the first off they're changing the colors for every team anyway, so which is kind of silly. But anyway, yes. yeah, um, that that is really silly. Just to have the crest on the on the shirt that looks all right. No, no, no. They just if they're going to put the stars on there, to me, there needed to be a maple leaf on there. And I know that, that a lot of people will take issue with that. There's two countries in here, and that's one of the most defining aspects of this league is that it's a dual country league. There are. Two or three in the world. There's three in the world that I'm aware of off the top of my head. There might be others um, that have a significant secondary country presence in them. In fact, I would argue that MLS is the most significant dual nation league in the world, and they never celebrate that, and there's nothing on this logo that illustrates this. I don't think the three stars things is convoluted. It's like it's not. no one's going to understand what it means when they look at it, and no one's going to remember what the press release said a month from now, right? So um, just put, yeah, exactly. You're right. Put an American symbol and a Canadian symbol up there instead to represent the two countries. To me, that is the most defining thing about this league in a lot of ways. But they never would. They never would have. And that speaks volumes to how MLS considers Canada. And that is to say that they don't consider Canada. You know, they have a new logo for every team. It would not have been hard to just have three Canadian logos instead of having three stars and it put three small maple leaves. And yeah. nobody would have complained. It would have been fine. That still would, yeah, that still would have been sort of not ideal, but it would have been at least acknowledgement. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they would argue, I guess, that the Canadian teams have the Canadian flag in their sleeve. Uh, I don't know why any of the teams have the flags in their sleeve. Uh, Montreal's have Quebec's or Canada's? I don't Canada's, know. Yeah, Canada. Okay. 
Um, look, again, I, I appreciate that in the grand scheme of things that this isn't a major deal, but it's one more little thing that illustrates to me how it's myopic. Like they don't think about Canada. They just, they don't ever imagine there'd be an issue here. And like, I know more serious things that have happened that I can talk about now. Like when the USL pro uh, deal with to have the, the reserve teams and USL pro deal went through last year, mm-hmm. they didn't consult the CSA. I have that from several people high up in the CSA. They didn't even ask them what they wanted. Like, are you really a partner in the league when they're not even asking questions about stuff like that? When you listen to them talk in press releases, uh, they, they always talk about the nation and our country and things like that. When they, the way that they report on the U.S. men's national team versus the Canadian national team, they, they don't give the Canadian teams much ado. And on one level, uh, it, it, first off, okay, let me back up real quick. I think that that's unfortunate for them because I think they're undervaluing how important the Canadian market is to them. It's a more, vo- more valuable than the three teams would indicate. There's more money coming into, out of Canada than goes into it for sure. And they could really benefit from increasing the exposure of MLS as a league as opposed to three markets overall in Canada. It's a market and an opportunity that they are really missing out on. A simple thing like having an MLS Canada office, which they don't have, which is mind-boggling to me, would would do wonders for that. This put an office and hire four uh, secretary and three people, right? Come on, like you could have you could do far more up here, but they just don't. They take us for granted. MLS Canada portal. Just one page of the website dedicated to MLS Canada could have make wonders like you say too. Yeah, they have a West Coast office. Well, yeah, so why not have it in Canada? That's yeah, it makes more sense to have a Canadian office as well. This is because they don't view it as a different market ultimately. Um, but it is. It does have unique issues up here. It has unique issues in alienation that's growing amongst certain fans. It's not universal, and it's, you have to be really tuned in to understand the alienation. But it's growing. There are people in Canada, and especially in BC, there's a lot of Whitecaps fans, old, old-time Whitecaps fans, that are really sick of MLS. I know in the Toronto community, there's a lot of people that are really tired of it too, and not just because of TFC. They just it's, they feel left out. It's like you they were invited to Thanksgiving dinner and then seated at the child's table. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> you know, and maybe you get cake, but it's you get more cake, but you don't have enough gravy. Which anyway is a final thought on this. It it got me thinking yesterday that what should Canada's end goal be with MLS? Like, are we better off with MLS? Obviously, we're better off with something rather than nothing. Yeah, I was going to say we're better off with MLS than nothing. But if something else, like, I don't know, an ASO Canada or something like that, well, if there's another option, who knows what can happen. Yeah, and there comes a point where, you know, especially when there doesn't seem to be much movement on the Canadians' domestic rules. They're not talking about USL pro teams up here. Like, they make the CSA basically put draconian uh, quotas on there, which I'm glad they did. But that was a direct reaction to not being included in the initial consultation as they went as far as they could with them. And, look, I think that our all it was all tied into the Scotland referendum yesterday. I'm thinking about, like, like separation and independence and all that and how, like, ultimately it feels so frustrating here in Canada. And I get it from a perspective real quickly – that Americans might look at it and go, well, you're a guest in our league. Why should you get, get anything? And there's an element of truth to that. We are a guest in their league, and we shouldn't expect anything. They should want to give us more because of all the reasons I've outlined, but we shouldn't expect it. So ultimately, we need to do more, and we need to start focusing on the ultimate end game. I think, in this country of eventually, and I'm talking 25 years down the line, not being involved in MLS and being involved in our own thing. And there's a lot of people that are going to go, ah, that'll never happen. That'll, that's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's suicide. 
Well, of course it is if you have attitudes like that, but we, we have to move forward and move forward with our own solutions. And I think that the CSA at certain levels is doing that uh, with the refusal to sanction uh, non-Division three teams uh, in American leagues outside of the USL pro teams attached to the MLS teams. That's a, that's a step and an illustration and a concrete thing that illustrates that. But we just, we need to move forward and we need to start thinking about not just three years in the future, but 20 years in the future and where we want to be. And I think I want to be 20 years in the future as an interested observer in MLS, but a participant in something that is uniquely Canadian and uniquely ours, because we are never going to get anywhere in this world of soccer unless we have our own solutions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's going to have to happen eventually, because I know that the public and the supporters and the fans in North America have the North American sports in mind when you talk about leagues, where you get a lot of Canadian teams in American leagues, but the difference is they're working together, different associations, and the league does have, do have offices in Canada and stuff like that, talk about the NHL. But you need to think about it on a different level. Go to Europe, watch those places, watch those countries that have their own league, many leagues in the, every single country. And uh, even small towns, people always talk about econo- economically it's not feasible. Look at the leagues in Europe, small towns of 100,000 people got teams that are huge and have a $100 million payroll and stuff like that. When there's a will, there's a way. And we need to just accept that will, see that the change needs to be made, and just act upon it. Look, and I want to be clear about something. I'm not advocating for TFC, the impact, and the Whitecaps to up uproot and move into some fly-by-night startup operation if NASL Canada happens. I'm not saying that at all. I think that there would be a transition period of several years while the Canadian League stabilized. And I believe the Canadian League will work. And I, this is ultimately where I would differ from a lot of people. I think that the time is right and the partnership with the CFL makes a lot of sense. And I think that there is a market out there and you could grow that. And you could grow it to a, a level that would be far better than I think people think too. Because there's, there is a lot of interest in the sport and there's a lot of money behind that could go into the sport in this country. We could have decent teams, at least in the NASL level. If not the top level teams, because we wouldn't have the same kind of structure. I know that, I know enough people in the Canadian system to know that the, that the Canadian League will not be structured with single entity and restrictions like MLS. So then in a lot of ways, the top teams could put a, a New York Cosmo-like team together that could compete on a fairly equal level with, with MLS teams eventually after a couple of years. So, I'm not talking about initially like forcing the MLS team, the current MLS teams to, to up and leave. I'm, they would coexist beside the Canadian League for a while, but eventually I hope, and I hope we should, I think we should be working towards a day when it makes sense for TFC, the impact and the Whitecaps to leave. That's what I want, and that's what I think we all should hope for. And that's what we should be working towards. All right, Kevin, how do we end the show? Uh, people, uh, have a great weekend of excitement in Major League Soccer and NASL and, uh, have a great soccer. Good things might come to those who wait, but not for those who wait too late. We gotta go for all we know. Just the two of us. We can make it if